Hello, I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we've got for you this week. Well, coming up today, Tom's actually on holiday, so I'm joined by Simple Flying's lead sustainability journalist, Linnea Algren. She's going to talk to us about the world's first 100% SAF flight, as well as her highlights from the recent Sustainable Aviation Futures Congress. As well as this, I'll fill you in on the brand new Boeing Eco Demonstrator, the first flight of Airbus's A321XLR, and some of the most interesting moments from this week's IATA AGM and World Air Transport Summit. So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show. And I'd like to start by welcoming Linnea. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, Joanna. Thank you very much for having me and letting me fill in for for your esteemed (laughs) co-host. I wouldn't go that far. It's only Tom. (laughs) So I'll kick off um, because I want to talk a little bit about the long haul narrowbody that we are all eagerly anticipating, which is the Airbus A321 XLR. Um, because for the first time ever, the XLR took flight, which was really exciting to see. Unfortunately, I couldn't be there in person, but I've been lapping up the photos. Um, So the aircraft registered FWXLR took off from Airbus's production site at Hamburg Finkenwerder Airport. Um, This was on June 15th, and it flew for around four and a half hours over northern Germany before returning successfully to Hamburg, thankfully. Um, There was a five-person flight crew on board. Um, There were two pilots named Thierry Diaz and Gabriel Diaz de Village, and three Airbus engineers, Philippe Poupin, Poupin, <laughs> Mehdi Zidouan and Frank Homeister. I'm sorry, people, if I've completely butchered your names. I do apologise. Um, so they were testing things like the flight controls, the engines, the main systems, including flight envelope protections at both high and low speeds. Um, so this is obviously going to be the first of many flights for the XLR. There's actually four Airbus A321 XLR campaign aircraft. Um, and at the moment, there's no date specified for the second test flight. Um, but there's another aircraft that is fitted with the Pratt & Whitney GTF engines. So we expect that that one will be used in the flight testing as well. It's completed final assembly and now sits within the working party where all flight test instrumentation is installed and tested. Um, So as we know, the A321XLR has been a hot seller for Airbus. Um, There's a still growing customer list that includes international carriers, including Qantas, United Airlines, and most recently, of course, Air Canada. Um, And in fact, Airbus has accumulated more than 500 orders from around 20 customers worldwide. Um, One of the things that is kind of challenging with this airframe is its new rear centre fuel tank, um, which is moulded into the lower end of the fuselage. Now, obviously, this is what gives the XLR its extra legs to go um, the long range. Um, But it's causing some challenges in terms of certification. Um, In particular, I think Airbus wanted to insulate it to avoid passengers at the back getting very cold feet. Um, But now, yes, are slightly worried about the um, fuel 
uh, fire protection um, resulting from this. So Airbus announced just recently that the certification was taking a bit longer than expected. So now rather than late 2023, they're expecting it to enter service in 2024. But I think, you know, with a big game changing aircraft like this, that's not too bad. Um, we've seen worse delays, not that I'm naming names or pointing fingers. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I don't know how you feel about going long haul on a narrow body Linnea. It's, it's not something I'm too worried about personally. Uh, well, it depends on long haul and, and long haul. I mean, perhaps the, the higher ranges of the aircraft, I would be a little apprehensive, but but we'll see. We'll Definitely. see. It depends a little bit on how the airline will, will outfit the aircraft in particular as well. I think what kind of product we will see on it. Absolutely. Uh, but as you say, I think that the if, if, if this is indeed the delay that we will end up with for this aircraft, I think it's still a pretty amazing feat to yeah. bring such a game-changing machine uh, into service without any further delays than that, especially where certification is involved with this entirely new um, fuel tank setup. So exactly, yeah, best of luck to, to Airbus and all the customers that are eagerly awaiting it. Definitely, definitely. I think some other manufacturers could take a leaf out, out, out of their book, maybe. Um, but I wanted to talk to you particularly today um, because we've heard lots about SAF flights. Um, but actually, we've had the world's first 100% SAF flight this week, haven't we? We have indeed. So it's another historic flight um, in aviation sort of um, um, chronicles. And it was a collaboration between ATR, um, Swedish regional airline BRA or Brattens, and fuel provider Neste, and of course Pratt and Whitney, uh, who are the engine manufacturers for this ATR 72600 that flew from Malmö Airport in the south of Sweden to Stockholm Bromma Airport yesterday. And the flight lasted for an hour and 11 minutes. And it is the first flight so <laughs> with the first press release where they said that they were announcing that the flight was going to happen they said the world's first 100% SAF flight on a commercial aircraft now after the flight took place they said 100% SAF first flight on a regional commercial aircraft I think that they are sort of they they just wanted to make sure that they weren't stepping on on anyone's toes there potentially but um, to my knowledge, this is the first flight where there has been 100% SAF, meaning sustainable aviation fuel, in both engines. And it is also the first flight that has actually taken place, albeit with no passengers, and it was a test flight crew on board. It is the first flight on 100% SAF that has taken place on a commercial route, um, meaning that it has operated just as a passenger um, service would have. And I think this is a, it's an excellent um, illustration of how the industry is coming together and how it's not, it's not going to take just the airlines. It's not going to take just the OEMs. It's not going to take just the fuel providers. It's going to take all hands on deck. And ATR has been performing these test flights beginning in um, November last year. I, was in November, it might have been a couple of months before that, but it was sometime in fall last year where they begin undertaking uh, undertaking this series of test flights to have 100% staff certification for their aircraft within the next four years. Um, Airbus is, of course, also uh, preparing for 100% staff certification, and Boeing has promised that it will have 100% certified um, staff for all of its aircraft by 2030 as well. 
So I think we're going to see more and more of these collaborations and more and more of moving in that direction towards certification, because obviously today aircraft are certified to fly on 50% SAF. Now that could mean 100% SAF in one engine, 100% Jet A in another engine. Um, but of course, it's not only a question of certification, it's a question of ramping up production. For example, when Etihad flew its sustainable flight, the most sustainable flight they have ever done um, last year from London to Abu Dhabi, they wanted to uplift as much staff as they could get their hands on from Heathrow, which is a world leading airport when it comes to staff, right? So they wanted to get the 50% for which the aircraft was certified, um, but they ended up with 33%. That's all that they could that they could find, even when airlines are willing to pay the premium. So I think certification is one thing, but of course, ramping up production is something entirely different to actually even need a certification for 100 percent. Yeah, um, it's yeah. a huge challenge, isn't it? And I think, um, you know, it's interesting to see how many parties are involved. You know, it's very easy, like you say, to look at the airlines and go put your hands in your pockets and buy the staff. But if it doesn't exist, you know, what can they do? Absolutely. Right now, I think uh, the field providers uh, are seeing more interest than they have product. So. Well, that's a good situation to be in, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Certainly makes the business case for producing more of it. Indeed. The, I mean, the industry is uh, predicted to grow to 15 billion by by 2030. So, wow. It's a quite, yeah, it, it's a good space to invest in. I would say one of the things that um, is being called for in that area is stability of policy. And of course, it will include certification, but yeah, the stability of policy and that there's somewhat of a, a global understanding of, of how we get there, even if the the carrots and the sticks may, may differ <laughs> in severity. Definitely, definitely. Well, another company that's doing its bit, shall we say, for um, the environment or pressing forward the kind of sustainability agenda is, of course, Boeing. Um, now, Boeing every year for the last several years has um, employed an aircraft to be its eco demonstrator. Um, you might remember it was Alaska Airlines with its 737 MAX last year. Um, the year before, it was a Dreamliner from Etihad. Um, well, in the last week, Boeing has revealed its eco demonstrator for this year, and it's a big one. <laughs> it's a 777. Um, it's a 777-200ER that has spent most of its career with Singapore Airlines. Um, so it's actually a 20-year-old aircraft bearing the registration N861BC. Um, so it spent around 15 years flying passengers for Singapore Airlines. Um, and then it spent a little while with Air New Zealand and also with Suriname Airways. Um, Boeing got it... Um, around sort of this time last year, I believe, um, and has been preparing it to enter the Eco Demonstrator program. So, you know, it's it's a, a world away from the 737 MAX we saw them using last year. Um, and it's only the fourth wide body out of all the aircraft to have been used as Eco Demonstrators. So the other ones, it had a 7878 in 2014, it had a 777F in 2018, and a standard 777-200 in 2019. 
Um, so Boeing says it's going to be testing around 30 technologies on board this 777. Um, these include a smart vortex generator, which sounds uh, incredibly interesting. I'm, I'm excited to read about that, as well as a water conservation system that saves around 400 pounds or 180 kilograms per flight and a hands-free bathroom door and lock. Um, the hands-free bathroom door doesn't sound very eco to me, but I guess, you know, in terms of the um, health agenda, it's uh, it's all part of the next generation of, of flying. Um, so our, my colleague Jake was actually at Boeing Field um, to see this plane being unveiled. Delivery is absolutely gorgeous. So if you haven't seen it, do check out the photos on Simple Flying. Um, but Mike Sinnott, who's the VP of Product Development for Boeing, explained the choice of the aircraft. And they said they wanted the 777 because of the navigational capabilities of the air, airplane, as well as the sheer size and the ability to test so many different technologies because of the, the real estate that it provides. They also wanted a plane that they could keep for a couple of years at least. Um, you know, with the the Alaska Airlines 737 MAX, that hadn't even been delivered to the airline. So it was only really tested for a few months before they had to kind of hand it over because it wasn't really their plane. This one is going to stay with Boeing. Um, you know, because it's almost two decades old, it's not really going to be very much in demand for passenger carrying airlines, but it's still a very good test bed for the manufacturer. Um, so, again, I'm excited to see what the Eco Demonstrator project brings this year. Um, and what, I mean, smart vortex generators, I'm not entirely sure what that's all about, but it sounds very exciting. <laughs> yes, yeah, so for for me as a, a bit of a sci-fi uh, geek, the, all these things and new technologies are incredibly exciting, both from a sustainability point of view, but also just to, to imagine the way that we will be flying in, in years to come. And uh, I think the the choice to have an aircraft that does not need to go to a customer right away is a very smart one and will be able to generate an enormous amount of data, which, Definitely. Is, yeah, which yeah. is incredibly important as we move forward, both when it comes to things like water management, uh, operational efficiencies, weight management of the aircraft. I mean, there are so many things that goes into um, into efficiency improvements and uh, fuel efficiency and, and emissions and on those levels as well, not just the main sort of new technological pathways and, and propulsion um, technologies that we're looking to towards. Mm. But you have been looking towards some um, new propulsion technologies, sustainability in general. You've been at a, a, an event that I'd never heard of before, actually, but sounds like a really interesting place to be. Why don't you tell us a bit about that? It was indeed uh, the Sustainable Aviation Futures Congress. And you may not have heard of it because this was the first one that ah. was held in Amsterdam. <laughs> Uh, it will be a regular occurrence, at least for the next year. Uh, one, The next one will take place in San Francisco in December. Um, and then after that, there will be one in Singapore starting next year before it comes back to Amsterdam again in June 2023. Um, and it was indeed a very exciting place to be. And I could probably talk for hours <laughs> about everything that was being discussed and uh, on more or less technical levels. And um, but there are a few highlights that I would like to um, that I would like to share. And one is that, first of all, the, it's a necessity for the industry. I know that sustainability might not be the most 
um, flashy topic, unless there's a blended wing aircraft model. You know, <laughs> oh, yes. Everybody hiding. loves those. <laughs> Everybody loves those or um, an A380 test bed or, or something like that. But it, it is the small steps and the, the, the research that is being done now that will move us forward at least. Um, towards net zero, because even if it's not 100% achievable by the timelines that are being set, we have to at least do the work. We're like, we're not allowed to abandon the work. So I think, you know, just considering that with rising water levels, 100 airports will be underwater. <gasps> really? In just a few decades from now. Goodness. If you have uh, warmer air will cause it to be more difficult for aircraft to take off. So there will be more restrictions on maximum takeoff weight, which means payload, which means less revenue and things like just one degree warmer air will cost 12% more lightning. Wow. So these are things that will directly impact airline operations. You know, we are looking at um, two or three times more clear air turbulence um, because of the speeding up of the jet streams, etc. So I think for the industry to survive, as we know it, the industry needs to get a move on. Um, and I was very, very optimistic after this Congress, I have to say, because the message is that the money is there. Investors are ready to finance. They are ready to support sustainable aviation fuels. They are ready to support new aircraft technology. Um, speaking of new aircraft technology, that will most likely over the next decade is what we're looking for is efficiency improvements in terms of 15 to 20 percent. Um, maybe 5 percent of emission reductions will be operational efficiency. Um, and then SAF uh, will begin to make a more substantial dent after about 2030 with capacity ramping up now. Uh, quite significantly. And hope, the hope is that the biofuels, while they are essential now, the transition will be towards the power to liquids or the e-fuels. But of course, for that, we need renewable energy, we need green hydrogen, and also aviation cannot expect that all the biofuel that will be available will go to aviation. I mean, there are so many stakeholders in this and also renewable energy. <laughs> Aviation cannot say like, oh, okay, great. We have, you know, we have renewable energy sources. This should go to, to power our business. Um, especially as aviation being so hard to, to decarbonize has a little bit of a longer timeline than many other industries that it has for next year for, for understandable reasons. But so the, the, Financing is available, and I think a lot of the change will be driven by corporate travel, corporate customers, because companies have their own ESG targets that are meaning environmental, social, and governance targets, um, where the emissions reductions are, as I just mentioned, more stringent than the airlines in terms of the timeline that they're hoping to get to net zero. And obviously, business travel is a great source of a very significant source of revenue. For airlines. So this is something that it, it makes sense from both a business point of view, from a planetary point of view. It's just, it needs to happen. And I, one of the main topics was the system of book and claim, um, which is you can obviously buy sustainable aviation fuel, have it fueled onto the aircraft where you are. You are flying on sustainable aviation fuel. You are directly reducing your emissions, your CO2 emissions. For, for corporates, this would be their scope-free emissions from business travel. 
However, with the booking claim, you pay for stuff that is available somewhere in the world and you get to count it towards your emission reductions, meaning your carbon countings. Um, and this could be a way, there are of course some issues to get over with certification, different levels of, of stringency in different regions, et cetera. Uh, but with a robust uh, you know, mass balance system in place, the hope is that we can also add a book and claim system where companies can pay for stuff where it is available in an area to be loaded onto another aircraft and fuel a different aircraft than the one that they're on but they're still paying for the emissions reduction and then they can claim that towards their ESG targets. Um, so I think we're going to see more of that. Uh, Amex and Shell just launched together with Accenture uh, a book and claim blockchain based um, system for Amex global um, business travel companies or their, their clients. Um, and finally, I, as I said, I could talk about <laughs> a very long time, but just um, coming back to the 100% staff flight, the, the ATR flight that we were talking about earlier, uh, I think regional aviation and regional airports specifically will drive a lot of the sustainable innovation because at regional airports, you have the, you may not have the money, you may need investors uh, for the project, but as I said, the investors are willing and they're there and they have the space. Larger airports such as you know Heathrow, uh, Paris, you know, JFK, whatever, heavily congested airports, they don't have the space to implement pilot programs and, and to change their operations in that way. Whereas regional airports can sort of try things out a little bit differently and then hopefully that can be implemented onto on a greater scale. And if we're looking far in the future, um, the fuel crisis now that we have seen has uh, sort of introducing new interest towards becoming more independent in energy departments. And so the hope is that uh, with hydrogen, for example, you need to have the hydrogen very close to where you're fueling the aircraft for, for many technical reasons that I won't go into detail on. But the hope is that airports could potentially become like energy hubs in that way as well. So there's a, a reimagining of the role of the regional airport and regional air mobility, um, which in turn could help across sectors reduce emissions. If we get cars off the road with more sustainable um, air transport, that could also go a long way towards reducing overall transport emissions. So, um, I mean, that would be a real kind of uh, flip change, wouldn't it, for aviation to become the saviour of carbon emissions because right? of more efficient regional planes than, you know, taking cars off the road. Whereas now it's kind of the poster child for climate change, isn't it? It's like this is the bad boy. So, yeah, I hope your predictions are true. That's so interesting. Right. Wouldn't that be a, a storyline? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I think an, arc, an arc, if ever there was one. within Definitely. The Very well deserved as well, because I think think you know aviation is doing so much on the sustainability front and yet you know like it's still held up as being the worst thing in the world for pollution so um yeah I, I'm really excited to see some of these innovations and I think it's interesting you've positioned regional airports as kind of the test beds for these technologies um you know because I think a lot
lot of the kind of new propulsion technologies will be emerging at our regional carriers. You know, we've got Widero, uh, for example, doing lots of exciting stuff with hydrogen and electric. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the future is looking bright and I'm really happy to hear that you were inspired by going there and not leaving completely depressed. <laughs> no, uh, I, I will refrain from, from mentioning what uh, committed warming is, but if anyone is interested in that, they're <laughs> more than welcome. But I will leave it on a positive note and say that I am... Um, I, I am. I have to say, I am optimistic because there are so many uh, passionate and talented people doing very, very interesting and promising things. Um, will we get there on time? Who knows? But as I said, we have to apply ourselves to the work. And yes, I could. Uh, of course, I could go on talking about ele hydrogen, electric, hydrogen, etc. But that will. If you have me back on the podcast, I might. <laughs> oh, we absolutely yeah. will. It's wonderful to hear you talking so passionately about these topics that, uh, you know, we all come across in our day-to-day -day lives, but nobody has the deep understanding quite like you do, Linnea. So thank you so much for that. Um, so I wanted to wrap up today. Um, Linnea has been to a very exciting event. Um, we have another journalist at an equally exciting event, which is the IATA Annual General Meeting and World Air Transport Summit. Um, so if you haven't heard of it, it's a two-day event that draws together top management from its 290 member airlines. I don't think they were all there this time. Um, but IATA represents kind of 83% uh, of the world's passenger traffic. So it's a really big organisation, very important. Um, my colleague Andrew is in Doha this week, um, soaking up all the discussions that are going on. So I just wanted to kind of feedback on a couple of things that were quite interesting. Um, notable was the um, absence of two countries' airlines. So executives from China's top airlines were forced to appear via video link um, due to the country's ongoing travel restrictions. I believe things are starting to ease, but it's still very difficult to get out of China and back again. So. Um, but they did attend, um, albeit ahead on a screen. Um, however, Russian airlines did not attend either. Um, and they didn't send their apologies. They just simply didn't show up. So IATA has 11 airlines based in Russia, um, Aeroflot, Airbridge Cargo, Nordstar, Nordwind, Pegasfly, Russia, Rusline, S7 Airlines, Smartavia, Ural Airlines and Uter. Um, Willie Walsh apparently commented that um, IATA didn't even ask them if they were attending or not. You know, they, it was their choice. It was up to them whether they attended or not. He reckons that it's down to the limitations of their ability to travel in and out of Russia right now. Um, and that's probably the principal reason that they weren't there. Um, but he also did say that they didn't have any direct contact from any of the carriers about why they decided not to attend. Um, but, you know, it's a very tricky situation. So let's not comment too much on that situation. Um, but the showing otherwise was very good. There were lots of airlines represented. Um, one of the biggest airlines um, that was in attendance was, of course, Emirates. Um, and our journalist had the opportunity to sit with Sir Tim Clark, who is the president of Emirates, um, to chat about how things are going and, and you know, um, of course, some of the burning questions regarding the delivery timelines of certain aircraft. Um, and 
his comment was that Tim Clark, um, particularly on the the triple seven X and the seven eight seven delivery timelines, he's beyond exasperation now. Um, as soon as anyone asks him a question about Boeing orders, he kind of sighs and his eyes roll to the <laughs> ceiling. And you know, he he said that it's almost like a prisoner who's moved from denial into acceptance. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I saw it back in Dubai last year. Um, the frustration is definitely there, um, and you can understand why. You know, Emirates ordered the triple seven X back in 2013, which seems like a lifetime ago now, um, and it anticipated the first ones arriving in 2020. And then in 2019, of course, they ordered the seven eight seven nine Dreamliners with uh, a delivery timeline of 2023. But of course, the development and production of both those aircraft um, has hit a lot of snags. So those original delivery timelines are kind of shot to pieces. Um, Andrew asked Sir Tim about, you know, which which plane he wanted the most. Um, and he kind of said that as far as the Dreamliners are concerned, the airline is going to have to have a really good hard look and see whether they still fit into their future flying programme or not. Um, and he almost thinks it might be a relief on both sides if they don't happen at this point in time. Um, and he wants Boeing to really concentrate on getting the 777X out of the door. I mean, we all know how much Mr. Clark likes his big planes, so not a huge surprise that that's where he's uh, he's pressing for things to get moving. Um, you know, but he did say, given the backlog and everything else going on with the Dreamliner, it might be best for everyone if they don't if they say that they no longer want the 787, um, which would be a, a bit of a kick in the teeth for Boeing. Um, they may in the future decide that it is a good fit, but with the A350 coming as well in summer 2024, um, they're already talking to Airbus about compressing their delivery dates to get up to two a month so that they'd get 50 over the two years. Um, and I think, you know, he's kind of indicating that his money is on the biggest planes, you know, as per Emirates um, modus yeah. operandi, I guess. Um, you know, the, the 777X is very frustrating for him. I remember him saying last year that um, it's causing other airplanes to stay longer than they'd intended, which means they need refitting, which is costing them money. Um, so, yeah, it's all a bit of a mess at the moment. But uh, the IATA AGM is still ongoing. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm lapping up all the details from Andrew. I do wish I was there myself. Um, but very interesting, I think, to get some colour from Mr. Clark on how he feels about Boeing right now. Absolutely. We did not name names with delays, but <laughs> Sir Tim is more than liberal with it. So. Definitely. Well, Linnea, it's been absolutely lovely to have you with me today, but I think we're just about out of time for today's podcast. Um, I do hope everyone enjoyed it. And as usual, we welcome any feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com. Thank you so much for having me, Joy. It's been a real treat. And for more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.